The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Jay, European elites are now saying that the shortfalls in petroleum supplies caused by reducing Russian imports shows convincingly that we must move even faster away from fossil fuels. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make any sense. In fact, I think exactly the opposite. I think the war in the Ukraine is horrible and sad as it is. When it is all over, I think people will wake up to the fact that you really can't do anything serious with wind and solar. Obviously, none of the war is being fought on either side with uh, wind and solar. And I think that will be the remaining uh, message. So, yeah, I think it's going to be the opposite of putting more support for wind and solar. And people are going to realize that fossil fuel is critical to life on Earth to maintain our uh, standard of living and, and, and everything we do. Oh, yeah. And you're not going to see battery powered tanks anytime in the near future, <laughs> you know. Certainly not. Or, you know, airplanes. I mean, in terms of defense, which is incredibly important. And one of the things the war is going to help is make uh, Europe recognize they have to be stronger, more independent, uh, less dependent on Russian gas. And defense is a major part. And uh, uh, no aspect of defense can be fought with wind and solar. Yeah, exactly. Well, to help our listeners understand this and the whole issue of energy security and whether or not we can really move away from fossil fuels and the European situation, we have invited Bob Lyman, uh, an economist and policy expert, to be our guest today on the program. Bob spent 37 years in the Canadian public service as an economist and policy advisor and served as a Canadian diplomat with postings in Caracas, Venezuela and Washington, D.C. Throughout his public service career, Bob worked for eight prime ministers across the political spectrum, all the way from Pierre Trudeau up to Stephen Harper. In the late 1980s, Bob Lyman was the senior director of energy policy when climate change first arose and was the first federal co-chair of the Federal Provincial Committee on Climate Change. He was also the Director General, Environmental Affairs in Transport Canada from 2002 to 2006, leading the analysis and policy development with respect to emissions reduction in the transportation sector, development and implementation of climate programs, and promotion of technology development to reduce emissions in that sector. Bob also spent 10 years as a consultant on energy, transportation, and environmental issues. He's deeply concerned 
about the politicization of decision-making and the stifling of dissenting views on all these topics. So welcome to the show, Bob. Well, thank you very much, Tom, and thank you for that kind introduction. Tom, that introduction begs my first question of Bob, and that would be how he managed. I mean, I know from Bob's writings that he is an absolutely brilliant economist, and he's been kind enough to share his work with me that I could co-author some of his articles. And I'm wondering how you lasted 37 years with the government, though I would assume through most of that period, it was not a leftist government and therefore was not uh, difficult to deal with. Uh, At what point would you say it might have gotten a bit uncomfortable for you? Well, fortunately for me, Jay, uh, even though I worked for many different governments uh, uh, which had different uh, political objectives, both conservative and liberal, uh, I had the good fortune to be working in public service at a time when most people were really dedicated to the objectives of the public interest, if you will. There were times when I was ne- I was not entirely comfortable with the 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 direction of the government, but in Canada, and I believe in the United States, public servants are committed to serve the public interest and as as determined through democratic elections. So you do the best that you can in terms of advising on uh, what are sensible ways to implement uh, the government's objectives, whatever they might be. Uh, to, to, To be very honest and frank with you, I would have been very, very uh, uncomfortable if I had to continue serving under the present government today in Canada. The Trudeau government that was elected in 2015 and has subsequently been re-elected is one uh, that has very distinct ideological perspective uh, that I would have found very uncomfortable to, uh, to work under. Well, yeah, I'm glad I- you're, you're out now and uh, helping us in so many ways of uh, suggesting policies and writing great articles about economics. But I want to cut now to the chase in regard to what I know is your exceptional knowledge of the economics of uh, European and Russian energy dependence. I've got a few questions and we'll begin with your explanation of where it stands now and how is it likely to change for the next year or two and clearly change is underway for many reasons, but the Russian-Ukraine war uh, would be the the first one. So how do you see the future? Well, the present is one in in which Russia and Europe's uh, energy economies are very closely interrelated. I mean, there is a certain amount of of codependency, whether they would acknowledge it or not. But uh, And uh, Europe, uh, in contrast to North America, is very heavily dependent upon imported energy supply. About 61% of Europe's uh, supply comes from other countries. And Russia supplies 41% of uh, Europe's uh, natural gas supplies, probably about 20% of its crude oil. And correspondingly, Europe consumes 49% of Russia's crude oil exports and 74% of its natural gas exports. That relationship is one that has developed and expanded over uh, at least two decades. And it's been reinforced, of course, by the construction of the pipeline infrastructure that would allow those energy sources to be delivered to market. 
the uh, relationship began to come apart a little bit over the past decade, and especially after Russia invaded uh, the Crimea, uh, and the European countries have uh, started, however gradually, to try to reduce their dependence on, on Russian supply. Can Europe increase their own production of oil and gas in, in light of uh, the, their crazy climate change uh, beliefs? Well, in, in geological terms, their options are very limited. Within the European Union itself, the only countries that have much oil production are, are Italy, Denmark, and Romania. And, and even that is not very, very great. The Norway, which is not a, a member of the European Union, is by far the largest producer of, of oil and natural gas. But uh, Norway's production has been steadily declining for a long time. And even in Norway, which benefits significantly from its hydrocarbons industry, the political forces are so great against investment in additional exploration and development that um, they can't really add to their capacity. So from the perspective of adding to oil and gas or even coal supply, there's not much potential uh, domestically within Europe. Well, could Canada and U.S.'s energy production eventually replace uh, that of Russia? Well, in principle, yes, it could, Jay, uh, in the sense that the Canada and the United States combined have, have enormous resources of oil and gas. The, the United States is one of the top five countries in the world in terms of its natural gas resources. Canada is the uh, second largest country in the world in terms of its oil resources. So strictly from a resource perspective, there would be no difficulty for us to uh, meet not only our own requirements, but those of Europe and other countries. But practically, we can't do so, and largely because of the uh, prohibitions of current policies. The question connected to that is, has the Ukraine war had an impact on Russia's gas production and sales? It has, but only in a, in a, in a fairly moderate way. I mean, you have to remember that Russia is the largest producer and exporter of, of natural gas in the world. You'd have to significantly change the supplies there if, to have much of impact on that. Right now, the, the only significant additional uh, natural gas supply that's available to uh, Europe is um, from the United States. Russia supplies Europe with over 18 and a half billion cubic feet per year. So the American additions, while undoubtedly helpful, really only uh, displace about 8% of, uh, of Russia's supply. Mm -hmm. Most people are aware that the war and sanctions are slowly but surely crippling the Russian economy. Uh, I would think that that could eventually have an impact on their ability to produce and uh, export their gas. Well, it certainly could. I, I, right now, the most important sanctions are the ones that relate to the uh, effective freezing of assets that are uh, held abroad by Russian banks. Um, there's also been an exclusion of uh, the, what they call the Russian intermediary financing institutions from the uh, international messaging system that is used to facilitate uh, fin financial transactions between member uh, banks. And those have had major effects in terms of reducing Russia's ability to access the funds that it needs to carry on the conflict and, of course, to, to carry on 
its other expenditure objectives. Bans on energy imports so far have been relatively modest in terms of their impact. I mean, what Russia has done is it's tried to, to market its, uh, its oil and its gas elsewhere. And there have been a few countries like, like India that have been more than happy to be ready buyers, especially if they can be given a discount. But the group of seven countries are now talking about stripping Russia of its most favored nation trading status. And, and that would be a very heavy blow because it would mean that uh, it would be much more difficult for Russia to, to, uh, to market all of its, its goods and trade. It, the, the effect of that so far has not been entirely clear, but it's, it, it's resulted in a fall in the value of the ruble. And it's expected that there will be very high rates of inflation in Russia, probably in the order of, of 20% this year. So it's mm, really hitting, wow. it's hitting home there. Yeah. Now, has the oil continued to flow as usual from Russia into Europe during this invasion of the Ukraine? Yes, for the most part, uh, it has, both the oil and the gas, because in, in some countries like uh, Poland and Hungary are, are virtually entirely dependent upon that supply. They, they can't cut it off. It, it has continued to, to flow to uh, Germany as well. The infrastructure just is not there to, to allow those countries to, to switch to other sources. They started, you know, to maybe 10 years ago to build more liquefied natural gas facilities that would allow them to import gas. And there are some plants in Spain and in Belgium, but they'd have to significantly expand that capacity before they could make uh, much of a change in the pattern of supply. Mm-hmm. So they've made themselves thoroughly dependent on Russia. Well, indeed. I mean, and, and de- dependent in, in the, in the, both in the sense that they are pretty well limited to, to Russia in terms of, of getting the majority of their oil and gas. But as they have considered investments in the rest of their energy system, you know, whether it would be in nuclear energy or coal or, or, or even renewables, they have not been very uh, aggressive in expanding that. And, and Germany has just closed three of its nuclear power plants and proposes to close the last three by the end of this year. Belgium is contemplating closing its uh, nuclear power plants. Yeah, uh, but, uh, Tom and I have been doing uh, a number of international shows. And uh, last week, our guest was a environmental scientist from uh, Germany, Wolfgang Muller, and he basically said exactly what you have said. They're going full bore entirely in the wrong uh, direction. Uh, The week before that, we talked with a scientist from uh, Brazil and before that from Chile. And it's the same story. All these countries are going in the the wrong direction. Uh, You mentioned a, a little bit ago the sanctions on Russia, and I'm guessing the majority of our listeners don't fully understand what the sanctions are. You mentioned a few of them. I think it would be worth uh, understanding what we are doing to Russia. What are uh, some of the other sanctions that most people wouldn't understand? As I say, they mostly have to do with changes in the rules governing uh, financing, which make it very difficult for Russia to access funds. There certainly is the possibility of restrictions on movement uh, of people from, from Russia. Uh, it's possible they ha- there have already been some uh, efforts to penalize the, 
uh, richer members of, of the uh, Russian society, the so-called oligarchs, by freezing their assets in other countries. That affects a relatively small number of people, but they tend to be ones that may be closer to, uh, to Putin. There's an interesting question about so-called secondary uh, sanctions. In other words, if a country decides that it will go on cooperating with Russia, go on trading or, or providing funds to Russia in contravention of the sanctions that are being uh, imposed by a large number of countries, the door is always open to impose more sanctions upon the countries that are breaking the sanctions, in effect. And there is even been talk of doing that, if, even if China were one of the countries doing that. that. That's a very risky approach, though, because it means that you can take a, a situation that is confined now largely to Europe and make it into a worldwide economic uh, as well as security problem. Mm -hmm. I have a little trouble with uh, one concept. You know, they always say for many things that the ends justify the means. Do you think it's actually ethical to be somehow restricting the wealthy Russians who, after all, didn't start the war? They didn't make the decisions. They may have some influence with Putin. But I, I was reading the other day how they seized one of the yachts of a wealthy Russian. So, I mean, yeah, I understand the ends. They're trying to get Putin to back down. But does that justify the means, namely taking away even from Putin's daughters and things like that? I mean, is that really justified in your opinion? Well, that's, I'm not an ethicist, uh, Tom. I, but but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I think the thesis behind it is that many of the so-called oligarchs are people that are allied with Putin in terms of uh, his approach to running the, the Russian economy, and that um, therefore, if you uh, affect his friends, uh, you're likely to be imposing pressure on people that in turn can influence Putin. That is the rationale. I, I quite agree with you. There, there, there's no doubt a risk that there are a lot of other innocent people that could get caught up in uh, the consequences of that. You know, I'm not an ends justify the means uh, person because that is absolutely uh, the total of the liberal uh, philosophy. But Putin is murdering thousands of people uh, in the Ukraine. And I think any little bit of pressure you can uh, place to stop it, even though it, it may be an unintended person that's not directly uh, involved. So uh, I would say in this case, uh, there are times when the ends justify the means, even though uh, generally I'm opposed to it, but anything they can do to, to stop them in my mind is, uh, is in play. It, it is a rather profound issue that we're facing here there, of course. I mean, the, the fundamental change that I think that the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has brought to the global energy scene and, and indeed the controversies over climate, the role of climate policy is that it is uh, once again reminded the world that energy security issues are extraordinarily important. Um, and that they can very much affect the quality of life for people everywhere. For many, many years, energy security was perceived as an issue 
primarily involved the Middle East, and that involved a question of potential interruptions of supply and, and energy price shocks. Uh, but we're being reminded now that security of supply uh, can involve very profound issues of peace and security and, and indeed equity uh, for people. And, well, uh, you mentioned in a paper you wrote uh, recently that the world will never have energy isolated nations that will always be interconnected. Could you explain that a little further? Well, I meant that primarily with respect to the oil market. Those of us who experienced the energy embargoes of the 1970s uh, will recall that people were greatly concerned in North America and Europe about the effects of politically inspired interruptions caused by the OPEC countries, more, more specifically by, the, by OAPEC, which is the Arab OPEC countries. It's interesting in retrospective that the, the actual interruption in supply from each of those countries was only about 1%. And that's quite astounding. But the psychological effects, you know, the, the, the fear that um, it gave rise to resulted in people building up their, their stocks, you know, standing in line and, uh, to, to get gasoline and uh, service stations and so on. And, and ultimately in you know, governments of the Western countries imposing price and, and, and import controls. They did that because they perceived the, the world oil market as largely being regional in nature, uh, you know, where the relatively small interruptions of supply within regions could, could quickly not be made up by, by supply from elsewhere. What's happened in the meantime has been the significant growth in the, in the number and amount of oil production in other countries of the world. And so the, the world today is one in which that plus the, you know, the, the very large amount of available oil tanker capacity means that if you have a, an interruption, the, um, the world market can adapt very quickly and, and shift the supply to where it's needed. Instead of having a series of regional silos, it's, it's, as, it's as though we, we, we are on, on a pool of oil that... that uh, is uh, affects the entire world, and and if you, you know, lower the, the level of supply uh, in one, any one part of the pool, it affects everyone in the pool equally. So uh, no country can ever hope to have uh, a, a completely uh, safe and independent path. We're all affected. Now that's definitely not the case with respect to natural gas. Now natural gas can still is primarily moved by pipelines. Uh, and while um, the movement by tankers is, in the form of liquefied natural gas is definitely increasing, uh, it has not yet created a single world market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Canada is, in my opinion, an unrecognized giant in the field of energy. And uh, that's where, and oil and even uranium. And uh, that's where uh, so much of your expertise lies. Where do you see Canada's role in this entire world energy system that uh, you've been describing? Well, there's the role that I would like to see it play, Jay, and there's the role that current policies uh, will confine us to. As I said, Canada is the second largest, uh, has the second largest oil resources in the world, primarily in the Alberta oil sands. 
while we've been producing uh, oil from that region since the early 1960s, we've barely scratched the surface of it. It's a, about 20% of the oil in that area is actually capable of being produced by mining techniques because it's near the surface. But most of it is in, in uh, deep underground and it has to be produced using techniques that will heat, basically heat the resource and move the uh, uh, oil to uh, wellheads that will allow them to produce it. You know, I'm guessing that most of our listeners have heard of the Canadian oil sands, but likely can't get their arms around exactly what they are. Could you spend a moment or two to simply describe what that resource is? Most of the oil sands are what are called bitumen or, or extremely heavy oils. Unlike conventional oil that you are more familiar with that will flow to a wellhead by the, on the basis of natural or, or artificial pressure, oil in the oil sands is, it's, it has a, the consistency of molasses. In other words, to, to get it to move, you have to heat it, you have to dilute it, and you have to use special techniques both for production and for the movement of that oil in pipelines. It contains typically more contaminants and therefore it, it costs more money to move it, to, to develop the, the bitumen to the point where it, it, it can be used as fuels. What often happens with the, the production from the oil sands is that it is moved in, uh, in that kind of molasses form and, and diluted to refineries in the United States that have the capability of, of uh, upgrading it and then refining it into and the, the lighter products like gasoline, aviation fuel, etc. How large is the area uh, geographically that contains the oil sands, much of which I, I believe can be seen from the surface? It's not as big as you might think. I mean, the, the, the geographic area, um, I, I forget the exact square mileage of, uh, that it is, but it's not much bigger than the city of Calgary. But the resource is enormous. Can you define the difference between a reserve and a resource? Reserves generally are the volume of, a, of, a, of an energy resource, whether it's oil or gas, that is, can now be developed under current commercial and technological terms. Uh, in other words, it's economic. It's economically viable. Resources right. are the amount of the energy source that is a, a present in place geologically, but that may or may not be financially profitable to, to develop with present technology. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the resources typically tend to be much, much larger than the reserves. Mm -hmm. uh, what has happened, uh, fortunately for Canada, is that the technologies that are available to exploit the oil sands have been improving so much with time that much of what used to be considered to be resources are now reserves. So I think it's about 170 billion barrels of reserves in place. The, the, the size of the resource, though, is difficult to imagine. It's, it, it's about 1.4 trillion barrels of oil in the reserve. Wow. Wow. Yes. So yeah. that, that means that, it, that if, you know, if we can get at it, you know, economically, um, that would satisfy much of the world's demand for oil for many, many decades, just from yeah. Canada. And, and the yeah. amazing thing is that Venezuela has even more, but they have so 
mismanage their their exploitation of the resource that they're only producing very small amounts uh, of oil nowadays. So Venezuela has oil sands as well? Yes, in the, oh, in the Orinoco belt. I, I never knew that. Never knew that. We often hear that the oil sands are the dirtiest form of petroleum on the planet. I mean, is that really true? No, not at all. I mean, it, when they say dirty, of course, they're they, they're considering the amount of carbon dioxide that is emitted from the production and consumption of the fuel uh, as as being dirty. I mean, carbon dioxide is not even remotely dirty. Yes, it is true that the production of oil from the oil sands is more energy intensive. That is, it requires more energy to extract the energy that is there in place. Therefore, you know, there are more greenhouse gas emissions per per unit than there are than there is in the case of conventional oil. But the Canadian industry has been remarkably successful at reducing the emissions intensity. They've actually reduced it by over a third in the, in the last decade. If you compare the emissions intensity of most of the oil sands crude oils to those that are used on average in the United States, the oil sands crude oil is not that far off the average. Oh, wow. So once again, it's just simply propaganda. We've got to take a short break. We'll be back with Robert Lyman after the break. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy, and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. We're back with Robert Lyman, an economist and policy advisor. Bob, you mentioned Venezuela and taught me something I didn't know, that 
Venezuela had tar sands somewhat similar to what uh, Canada has. Long range, where do you see Venezuela and Saudi Arabia stand in the world's oil supply, especially with regard to their politics? Well, they too have very different oil resources. The, the oil resources of Saudi Arabia are primarily conventional supplies. They tend to be quite light in the sense that they're more easily used to convert to, uh, to produce uh, the petroleum products that are most in demand. Uh, whereas in Venezuela, their oil industry historically was divided into two parts. The, the one that had the more conventional oil production, which was located in the eastern part of the country near Maracaibo. And then there was the uh, heavy oil deposits that were located in the western part of the country, were in the Orinoco. Uh, belt. Sorry, I had that reverse. Maracaibo is in the west and, and uh, Orinoco is in the east of the country. I think Saudi Arabia will continue to be one of the most important oil suppliers in the world for the indefinite future because the size of their resource is so large. Venezuela was at one time a major producer. I think its, it's total production got up to about 3 million barrels a day, just under what Canada's production is today. But as a result of the change in government and the policies that were implemented by a series of governments, they have constantly reduced their investment in their production and development and production. And so their production now is down in the around 400,000 barrels per day. They've been getting quite a lot of technical and financial assistance from the Chinese because the Chinese are def very much interested in expanding their influence um, in uh, Venezuela, and, and in fact, much of the uh, oil is produced by Venezuela is, is actually being shipped to China. But it, they have not significantly increased their production capacity. In, in a long-term future, if you, the government in Venezuela were to change completely, they would have the potential to once again resume uh, their position as a major oil supplier. Right now, going back to your country of Canada, how are the leftist policies of your current government under Justin Trudeau impacting their position in energy exports? Well, in several ways, Jay. I mean, uh, most importantly, policies that have been implemented under the heading of climate change policy have increased the cost of, uh, of production. Canada has a carbon tax now of $50 per ton, and that's due to rise to $170 per ton by 2030. The oil producers who are fairly large emitters themselves know that they're going to have to face those costs. So that tends to discourage investment. The other thing that the government has done has been to systematically discourage or impede the construction of energy infrastructure. And I'll, I'll give you a kind of a short list of some of the major projects that have been canceled. There was a, a project that was to go to the, the East Coast called the Energy East Project, which would have transported oil from the Alberta region right through to the, to the Atlantic ports and uh, been capable of exporting oil from there to the U.S. East Coast or on to, to Europe. There was a, 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 an oil pipeline that was to go to the West Coast that would have shipped oil to Pacific markets. There have been three major uh, oil sands projects that 
proceeded as long as eight years into the regulatory review stage uh, before being cancelled, largely as a result of the climate policies. The absence of available pipeline capacity has meant that Canadian heavy crude has had to be discounted in the the mid-continent markets. And from 2012 to 2018, that resulted in Canadian producers losing about $40 billion in revenues that they would have otherwise earned. The government has imposed a, a ban on the movement of oil off the northwest coast of British Columbia, which will make it impossible to move oil by tanker from that area. That was based on no analysis of the, of the oil spill risks at all. The government has, has further banned all exploration and development in northern Canada, which is an immense region that probably has about 40% of our potential oil resources. Finally, lest let it be forgotten, the government had reformed the environmental assessment and review process to add a new stage called a review in principle phase. And the key part of that review in principle phase was whether the construction of uh, this energy infrastructure would undercut the government's net zero emissions goal. If it did, the government will not approve it. One of the things that strikes me is you have to say, how far does the climate scare have to go in ruining our economy and shutting down our energy sources and and our ability to, to move it around? How far does it have to go before the petroleum sector and people in natural gas will say, enough's enough, this climate scare is ridiculous and we totally oppose it? Or are they just going to let it all die? Well, that's the, the perennial question that people who express skepticism ask. And, and uh, I mean, it, it bears not just on the politics of it, but it bears on the question of what sorts of measures should what I call climate realists take to, to raise the awareness in the Canadian public about the, the disadvantages of the present policies. The major impact of the policies so far have fallen upon uh, Western Canada, Alberta and Saskatchewan, which are the major oil, oil and gas producers. And that's not where the most of our population is, as you know. Most of our population is in Ontario and Quebec and British Columbia. And th- those uh, areas so far have not been as badly harmed. But the nature of the climate policies is such that they're intended to discourage investment in all emissions intensive and trade exposed industries. And so that goes well beyond oil and gas. That includes mining, petrochemicals, steel, cement, aluminum, pulp and paper. You know, these are industries that spread right across the country. And, And as the impacts of policies are felt there, then it will drive away the investment and the employment from uh, all parts of Canada. That's when I think the, the, the public will twig to, to the impact and uh, there may be a fundamental change in the politics of the issue. Mm-hmm. But by then, of course, it, in some cases, it'll be too late because these are major industries that will wound down. Uh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. well I, I'll challenge too late. I mean, too late is a term that only applies to time, months, years, but it's it's never too late to turn around and history of many centuries shows that. But right now, uh, would you guess, and I've discussed this with Tom before, Bob, 
how long do you think Justin Trudeau, who now has to be considered one of the world's worst tyrants, how do you, how long do you think he can hold power? I don't think it's more than 10 years. Tom and I have discussed it and Tom thinks it's four or five. He's even mentioned being the lifetime tyrant of Canada. What are your thoughts? Well, he doesn't have to call another election until 2025. So he has at least that long. And the duration of his staying in power beyond that will, of course, depend upon public will. I sincerely believe that the adverse effects of climate and other policies that the government is pursuing will make it deeply unpopular well before 2030. That has to have an effect. But Picking a specific year is very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. It all strikes me as sort of death by a thousand cuts until the climate scare is killed. I mean, it is causing so many troubles, but most people just don't see that. They don't see that this is the source of a lot of our issues. I think what often happens is that whether it affects energy policy or other policies, it comes down to pocketbook issues. You know, to, to what extent is the average person's life uh, very much affected? We're heading into a period in Canada where we're going to have much higher inflation rates than we've had for a long time. That will have dire impacts on a lot of people who are on fixed incomes and uh, you know, older people. And more than that, the higher incomes are very much affecting housing, of course, and it's, it's basically killing the hopes that many young millennials have of ever being able to own a house. The climate policies, incidentally, only serve to make that worse because, you know, many of the policies are, will add as much as $100,000 to the cost of building a house. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, you're just, you're taking all the dreams that people had hoped to have and, and withdrawing them one at a time. People like us who talk about major economic issues, and major energy issues tend to think about these things in terms of the broad consequences of, for, for, for peoples and for governments, but it it's, can be very much affected by, you know, the, the average person, how, how the average person is affected. And I, I foresee that that problem will, will come to a head not too long. So you don't think that if Trudeau were to stay in for 10 years, that he could continue this for 10 more years and that country would eventually just become totally and completely broke and more and more deindustrialized. You think that there would be at some point a turnaround? It's a hope, Tom. I, I you know, I, I, you know, one is always surprised by politics, um, and uh, I would have never thought he'd get elected the last time, given you know the, all of the scandals that that have, the government has been plagued by. We face an odd situation in Canada in, and perhaps in the United States as well in that the vast majority of the, of the population live in, in large urban areas. Uh, and in many ways, they have lost their sense of touch with rural Canada and with the resource industries. They don't understand the resource industries. They regard them as kind of you know, old economy and, and as undesirable, forgetting that that is what our what has provided us with our competitive advantage over a long period of time. If you go in rural Canada, small town Canada, they're intensely antagonistic towards the policies that are being implemented. But if you go to the large 
municipalities like you know Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, they tend to be quite supportive. And so, the, I mean, the question becomes when when will the urban populations become more aware and more you know challenged by by what's being ha- happening in the rest of the country? Yeah. So so the analogy, death by a thousand cuts. We just have to make sure they see those cuts. <laughs> You mentioned the United States a moment ago. What are the relationship between Canada and the United States today, and how has it been uh, impacted by Mr. Trudeau's leadership? Well, by and large, Canada and the United States have enormously important uh, and, and mutual interdependence in terms of our of our energy trade. Um, the um, Canada is by far the largest source of, uh, of oil imports for the United States, largest source of, of natural gas imports. We have very much interconnected pipeline systems that allow us to move uh, oil and gas back and forth, a long history of security cooperation. Uh, and so there's no reason why in, the, in, in better political circumstances that tradition should not continue and in fact grow and enrich both countries. But the policies that are being followed, both by the American and Canadian governments right now, are, are really severely limiting the potential for, for increased uh, energy trade and, and, uh, and benefit. I, I mentioned a, a number of the pipelines that have been denied in Canada. I, I didn't mention the Keystone XL pipeline, which was primarily in the United States, and but would have given Canadian oil much increased access to the the mid-continent U.S. market. That was under investigation by regulatory bodies for a very long time. It was The applications were initially filed in 2008, and it was not finally killed by, except by executive order by President Biden in, in 2020. It had gone through extensive environmental assessments and assessments of all aspects of its, the potential benefits, and it had passed all of those tests but it didn't test the final, uh, didn't pass the final political test. There is another threat on the horizon in that Governor uh, Whitmer of uh, Michigan is threatening to cancel the permits which allow Enbridge Line 5, uh, a pipeline that moves from Alberta through, through to uh, a number of U.S. states, including Michigan, and on into Ontario and uh, Quebec, because of her, what she claims is an unacceptable threat, unacceptable threat of, of oil spills at the Straits of Mackinac. Well, that pipeline has been operating for over 60 years with no spills at the Straits of Mackinac. And the, the pipeline sponsor, Enbridge, had made an agreement with the previous Republican governor to bury the pipeline in a cement sleeve so that it would be absolutely impossible for there to be any spill in water there. And Governor Whitmer has said that, that that's not acceptable. Do you think it's driven by the climate scare again? Whenever one con- enters into any controversy about this, Tom, the people who are in favor of the ending Line 5's permit never talk about oil spills. They always talk about climate change. I'll place Governor Whitmer along with Justin Trudeau and Mr. Biden as being uh, Marxist leftists of the uh, at the worst level, but uh, I can optimistically tell you that 
she and Mr. Biden uh, will be gone in 2024. And I'd be uh, willing to bet a significant amount of money that one of the first things that the new president in 2024 will do is to get back to the Keystone Pipeline eventually being completed. I I think there's little chance that I'll be wrong on that prediction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, Bob, the, the current conservative candidates for leadership of the party all of them, except one who's non-committal, all of them are supporting the climate scare. And yet at the same time, they say they want an expansion of the pipelines and all this sort of thing. I mean, it sounds like they're shooting themselves in the foot. Well, as you know very well, Tom, when people talk about, about climate policy, they talk about it in very simplistic terms. If the question is asked, is the climate changing? Yes, it is. Do human emissions play a role? Yes, they do to some extent. Has the warming been dangerous so far? No. Are the projections of of the models that it will warm significantly in future and and result in a catastrophic result? Is that correct? No. But the average citizen doesn't make those distinctions. And, and And I think that so many people have accepted the general reality that there is some climate change occurring and, and, and humans have played some role in that uh, as a validation of the catastrophe claims. Yeah. Um, and so the, uh, I think that's what's affected the willingness of, of the conservatives to well, engage. You're exactly right, but uh, it will end because the sea levels are not going to rise and the ice is not going to melt and the glaciers are not all going to recede. And Uh, All the things that they predict, which are basically lies, will eventually wear thin on the public. You know, the left will always come up with some scare to try to control the population and uh, be in control of the government. But this particular one will eventually end. Sadly, will last longer than we, we feel. But again, I think even by the 2024 election, the scare will have softened uh, significantly because, you know, they really got on the bandwagon with, you know, the world as we know it's going to end in 12 years. We're now down to seven. Uh, Then we'll be down to three. And at some point, the average (laughs) person's common sense will come into play. (laughs) You know, at some point, we're going to just, it's going to look so stupid that most people will wake up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jay, I just want to pick up on, on one point that you mentioned earlier, and that is whether with a new administration in the United States, there's any prospect of uh, the uh, Keystone XL pipeline being renewed. The sponsor has said that there would not be. Now, of course, that, that things can always change. But the, but the reason is that the Keystone pipeline was, if, if you recall, initially delayed by President Obama. I mean, delayed for a very long time, and then finally approved uh, by President Trump, and then finally unapproved, if you will, by President Biden. In the meantime, the project went through innumerable court challenges by environmentalists and, to some extent, Aboriginal groups. And it, so, from as a project sponsor, uh, or from a project sponsor's perspective, it was an absolute nightmare. Trans Canada's perspective would be. Can we be sure that a project that would take years to build 
would actually make it to completion before there's another significant political change and, and before we are held up in the courts once again. Mm-hmm. And I think it may be very difficult to persuade any pipeline company to take that risk. I'll throw in some optimism there. There'll be a change in government in 2024. I don't think there'll be a change in 2028. Uh, I think we're at the tipping point. The left always likes to use the concept of a tipping point in a very negative way. I think we will be at a tipping point by 2024 uh, that will last for eight years. And I think Canadian sponsors of the pipeline, if they have a feel that they've got eight years, I think that you know money, money drives the world. And I think they'll see money into reconsidering going back to the Keystone Pipeline. It's an opinion that you won't, uh, you won't be able to talk about for another, another three years, but uh, I feel very good about it. Yeah, but the next Republican government had better really kill the climate scare, you know, including re-examining the EPA declaration of carbon dioxide as being something that can be controlled in the Clean Air Act. I mean, all these different things, they were left in place. Trump made some progress, but the next time they have to kill it completely. Otherwise, it'll just continue. Well, I don't know about completely is ever possible. But uh, our next president, I think, will either be Ron DeSantis of Florida or Donald Trump coming back. And both of them have showed every indication that they are willing to get on the bandwagon and end the, the insanity. Because now, more than ever, they're seeing the economic impacts of the insanity, which will be much greater by 2024. So there's another area that I'm fairly confident of. Picking up on what Tom just said about, you know, when will the scare come to an end? Uh, I am seeing an impact of the Ukraine war on uh, all of Europe. Europe uh, was never supportive of NATO. We didn't expect Germany to come to the support of Ukraine the way they have. So I'm seeing a sea change in Europe uh, that is going to be a lasting one, not overnight and not necessarily in a year or two, but uh, long range, I think uh, politically Europe will be a different place in, uh, in five to 10 years. And that's certainly important in the lifetime of most of our listeners and their children and family. What, what are your thoughts? on the future of Europe? I'm somewhat hopeful, Jay. Policies in Europe tend to be very heavily uh, influenced by the decisions in Germany because of course it's the largest economy and it's often had fairly strong leaders. That up to now has meant that they, the policies have definitely been moving in the direction of, of favored by the Green Party, which is now part of the, the governing coalition in, in Germany. There are uh, indications, though, that some of the other major countries, including, I mean, France in particular, Italy to some extent, and certainly the countries of, of, of Eastern Europe, like, like Poland and Hungary, are departing um, substantially from the a- emphasis upon emissions uh, reduction policies that have been dominant for so long. That's driven by self-interest. The threat that's posed by Russia uh, is reminding them that, that self-interest and, and is very important and, and that uh, they need to have the economic freedom to follow a different path than that which would be pleasing to, to, to Russia. 
when you look at the short-term comments that are being made by the European Commission, they don't indicate any change in course. If anything, they are doubling down on the notion that uh, all new investment has to be in renewable energy. They, they don't even want any, any uh, investment to occur in, uh, in nuclear energy. I mean, you were talking a little bit earlier about when does the reality you know, hit the fan. Europe has been investing literally trillions of dollars in trying to make uh, renewable energy the most important energy source for uh, at least two decades. And it has not succeeded in doing that. It's still heavily dependent upon hydrocarbons. It's almost impossible to, to envisage circumstances in which that would change radically. Oh, oh, Bob, I'll interrupt right there and say it will change ra radically. And I'll, I'll tell you when. Germany now has tripled their energy costs and the public has stood for it. With this continued investment in wind and solar that can only fail and give brownouts and, and blackouts and increase the cost, I'll predict when their energy costs are five times what they were 10 years ago, uh, that will be the tipping point. So uh, for me, I mean, I look long range. I know nothing's going to happen in the next year or two, but we're on a path where the pocketbook of the average German and every other uh, European uh, is going to require a change in attitude. Yeah, no, sorry, Jay, I was, I was not being very clear, I guess. Uh, what I meant was it would take a, a radical change in circumstances for a renewables-focused energy strategy to succeed. They only have, I mean, something, I think it's 36% of, of total energy supply in the European Union is, is based on renewables. Uh, but it is, as you m mentioned, uh, that makes them very vulnerable to interruptions. It makes them in increasingly dependent upon extremely expensive uh, electricity storage options. And it is leading progressively to the deindustrialization of a major part of, of the European economy. If, if their public you know, accepts that Europe should completely deindustrialize, move all the plants off to Asia, and somehow find a way to continue the standard of living there, then it'll last. But, but I don't see that happening. I, it's just, it's not feasible, even in, in engineering terms, to accomplish what they're talking about, uh, let alone in political terms. Mm -hmm. Wow. We got to wrap up there, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's quite amazing to me, Bob, how much of the problems we're having with, with regards to energy supply originates to a large extent with the so-called green revolution to stop climate change. I mean, it just all goes on and on. This is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.